Hey, thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive review for me in iTunes. You can also check out my all-too-rarely-updated website at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. Last week, we were in ancient Egypt, and this week, we're looking at ancient Greece with Troy from 2004. Again, when dealing with ancient times, the timeline can be difficult to nail down exactly. Written records in Greece don't really begin until about the 9th century BCE, about 300 years after our focus today, the Trojan War. So there are no historical figures in the movie Troy, but we can still use it to discuss many of the locations in the film, as well as the people who told these stories and the civilization that followed. Until the late 1800s, it was believed the Trojan War was nothing more than a Greek myth of a fictional battle against a fictional location, Troy. The story is passed to us as the Iliad by Homer. Troy was basically equated to the lost city of Atlantis. But then archaeological evidence uncovered on the west coast of modern Turkey, in an area the ancient Greeks would have known as Asia Minor, was excavated and scholars now pretty much agree that this is the legendary Troy. Multiple cities had been built on top of each other on the site, with the oldest version and lowest layer of Troy dating back to four to 5,000 years ago. After the sixth layer version of Troy was destroyed, likely, likely by an earthquake, we got Troy 7. There is evidence to suggest that this Troy was destroyed by fire and slaughter around 1140, or 1184 BCE, which would time out very well for it being the Troy mentioned by Homer. Ultimately, however, it's unlikely we'll ever be able to corroborate any details of the Greek account from a historical perspective. Let's start with the Iliad itself. Ilium is simply another word for Troy, so the title, the Iliad, can be seen as just simply saying, the story of Troy. Homer is the credited author of the tale, but as I mentioned last week, there is some debate. Homer himself cannot be historically verified. You may have heard mention of the blind poet whose stories were passed orally through generations before finally being written down. Just as likely is that the stories originated with some unknown author or authors and were shaped by different people over those same generations before being recorded. However it happened, right around 700 BCE or a little before, seems to be when the Iliad and Homer's other great work, the Odyssey, were composed. But again, like last week, I don't want to compare and contrast the movie Troy with the story of the Iliad. We're going to focus on the movie itself, and just know that Troy is only loosely based on the Iliad, and also uses chunks of the Aeneid by Virgil, a Roman poet from the 1st century BCE. We'll come back to that later, but I'll just tease it by saying Virgil gives us the perfect segue from ancient Greece to the founding of Rome. And one last bit of semantics before diving into the movie. The history of Greece can be divided into many different periods. Uh, as I always mention, there's always debate and overlap, but, but the term ancient Greece doesn't refer to just everything from a really long time ago. Generally, ancient Greece refers to a period beginning around 1100 BCE and ending when the country fell under Roman rule in 146 BCE. The period before that was Mycenaean Greece, itself a part of a larger Helladic period, and is when our story is set today. 
It's named after the city of Mycenae, which no longer exists, but was a major military center with around 30,000 citizens at its, at its height. As the movie opens, we meet Agamemnon, the king of Mycenae, who is in the final stages of uniting the Greek city-states uh, with Thessaly as the last holdout. Again, these are all mythological characters, and while the places are real, and we have a loose understanding of their society with a sort of warrior aristocracy, as Wikipedia calls it, we don't know any particular details, really. Anyway, so instead of pitting Agamemnon's army against the army, army of Thessaly, the leaders agree to decide the affair by single combat, each army's best warrior in a one-on-one -on -one battle to determine the outcome in lieu of a full-on battle. This has actually been practiced throughout history, with even John Smith of Jamestown fame having won in single combat a couple of times against the Turks. And hopefully we have time to get more into John Smith's history at some point, because all the real action happened before he ever came to the Americas. Uh, so anyway, Agamemnon's champion of choice is the great Achilles. If you know nothing else about Greece or Homer or mythology, we've all heard of Achilles, or at least the tendons we all have that are named after him. The legend goes that Achilles' mother was a lesser immortal goddess who attempted to make her baby son invulnerable by dipping him in the river Styx, the border between Earth and the underworld. She held him by his heel when he was submerged, uh, I mean, leaving the heel as the only part of his body where he could be harmed. Achilles here is played by Brad Pitt. He quickly dispatches the much larger soldier from Thessaly and asks if there is no one else to challenge him. The character of Achilles is all about creating his own legacy of glory. Humility is not something he's familiar with. We cut then to the port of Sparta, where peace is being brokered between Sparta and Troy. Now, this was not yet the dominant Sparta, known to rival Athens for control of Greece. That was, that was about 700 years later. The little slip from Netflix, from the Netflix DVD that Troy came in, says this is in 1193 BC. Uh, yeah, I know it's the only thing I found with the exact supposed date. Uh, the Battle of Thermopylae, depicted in the movie 300 uh, with Sparta, uh, was in 480 BCE. So about, again, 700 years later. Peace is thrown out the window when Prince Paris of Troy smuggles away the beautiful Helen of Sparta, wife of Menelaus, the king of Sparta. Well, Menelaus is the brother of Agamemnon, the king of Mycenae, and the, bro the brothers agreed to go to war with Troy to reclaim Helen. Known for her beauty, Helen is famously cited as having a f the face that launched a thousand ships, and this is why. Again, this is all mythology. Quickly being claimed by the Trojans, she is known to us uh, usually as Helen of Troy. The details of the full-on battles and episodes of single combat aren't really important, just tales of glory for the various legendary figures of the Greeks. So I'll jump ahead and note that the Trojans were extremely confident in the ability of Troy's high walls to keep out any attackers. After Achilles defeats Hector, another prince of Troy, in single combat, the king of Troy has to beg Achilles to get the body back so he can perform funeral rites on it. He specifically mentions needing to put coins on his eyes for the boatman. And this is close to an actual practice. We see a lot of movies where they put coins uh, on the eyes of the dead. In reality, it seems the practice was actually to place a single coin on or in the mouth. The idea was that the dead needed to give this coin to Charon, the boatman of the river Styx, who took souls to the underworld. The Greeks allowed Troy 12 days of mourning for their prince without attack. And this is actually about where the Iliad ends, but 
for a movie, it definitely makes sense to continue. The rest here is probably drawn more from the Aeneid. At the end of the morning period, the Trojans find uh, on the shore only the remains of a Greek retreat and some destroyed boats. Uh, it looks like maybe a storm had come and wiped them out. Standing on the beach is a giant wooden horse built as a tribute to the god Poseidon. The Trojans take the horse inside their city walls. And yes, this is where we get the term Trojan horse, the idea of a gift that turns out to be a trap or something negative. And of course, the big trap that is hidden inside uh, the horse are several Greek soldiers. They sneak out in the night, kill some guards, and open the main gates of the city to the entire Greek army. So Troy is toast at this point. Their main advantage was their walls. So the city is burned, uh, and again, as historical evidence just does suggest. And I really like the way the movie handled the whole Achilles heel thing. While Achilles was, had his attention elsewhere, uh, Paris, the prince who ran off with Helen, shoots him in the heel with an arrow. This is enough to hobble him and allows Her uh, Paris to put three more arrows in his chest. And then as uh, Achilles is, is dying, he kind of falls to his knees and he pulls the three arrows from his, from his chest and, and then dies. So when the Greeks later find his body, he will initially seem unharmed except for the one single arrow protruding from his heel. So kind of a nice way to maybe start a, a legend. Now, finally, this next piece is what made the history nerd in me jump with joy in the theater when I originally watched this, much to the confusion of those around me. Paris refuses to escape the city, feeling the need to redeem himself for some earlier cowardice, and his father had given him the Sword of Troy, claiming it dated back to the founding of Troy, and that as long as the sword survives, so does the spirit of Troy. Since Paris knows he's fighting a losing cause now, uh, he pulls aside a random citizen who is about to escape and gives him the sword. Uh, the man says his name is Aeneas. Now, while the movie makes no other reference, this is the main character of the Aeneid. Uh, in the Aeneid, after the fall of Troy, Aeneas leads a band of Trojan refugees who travel around the Mediterranean and ultimately settle in Italy. Various stories continue to say that Aeneas is then an ancestor of Romulus and Remus, the mythical twin brothers credited with founding Rome. We'll, we'll worry more about Rome down the line, but I just wanted to highlight the connection to Troy, even if it's only uh, legendary and not historical. And a few other details from the movie I'd like to mention. At one point, Paris gives Helen pearls from the Sea of Propontis. This is an actual place. Today, it is called the Sea of Marmara. Uh, quick geography lesson. The Aegean Sea lies between Greece and Turkey. The Black Sea is the uh, large one north of Turkey and south of the Ukraine. And the Sea of Marmara connects the Aegean and the Black Seas with a little help from the Dardanelles and the Bosporus, two, two famous straits on either side of the, the Marmara. And there's another moment where the Greeks mentioned that if they let Troy defeat them, how long will it be before the Hittites, Hittites attack? And this seems to be just the writers uh, name dropping a random contemporary power, but I thought it was worth noting. The Hittites were mentioned in the Old Testament and fought an epic battle against our friend from last week, Ramesses II, in which more than 5,000 chariots were on the field. Uh, the Hittites, though, would have been nearing the end of their influence uh, around the supposed time of the fall of Troy. And before closing, just, just some thoughts on the Greeks in general. In the Quest for Fire episode, I mentioned the idea of the cradle of civilization. Again, there are no absolutes, but, but scholars now believe we can say there were six cradles from which civilization independently arose. 
the Nile River, Mesopotamia, the Indus River, the Yellow River, Mesoamerica, and the Central Andes. Rounding all of those to the nearest modern country would be Egypt, Iraq, India, China, Mexico, and Peru. Uh, everywhere else, for lack of a better, better explanation, learned civilization from interacting with a previously civilized culture or from having civilized people uh, migrate, migrating to new areas. Greece, though not one of the independently spawned civilizations, is typically considered to be the cradle of Western civilization, basically what we consider European-influenced culture, politics, religion, academia, etc. I want to again cite Edith Hamilton's mythology. She, she talks about how uh, the image we have of the Greeks is one of a people who were never savage like we saw in Quest for Fire. We've talked about the strides we made with fire and agriculture, in Greece, those strides were made in how we thought. In Greece, Hamilton writes, man first realized what mankind was. We won't be revisiting Greece for a while on our journey here, uh, as there hasn't been a good enough movie made about Alexander the Great that is available online. So I want to hit a few highlights before we move on. First, uh, tying into this week, The Iliad was Alexander the Great's favorite book, and he took a copy of it on his conquests. Uh, the Greeks, of course, gave us the Olympic Games, with the first games uh, believed to have been in 776 BCE, lasting nearly 1,200 years until the Roman emperor Theodosius uh, put a stop to them. Just like today, they were held every four years and were considered a time for nations to set aside their weapons. It's, it's very cool that this tradition was brought back in 1896 and that Athens was the host. I, I think it's something we, we take for granted. On the religious side of things, we've all heard of Zeus, Poseidon, etc. Uh, these are the Greek gods. Hamilton notes that they were the first gods seen as having human form. Similar to Egypt, there doesn't seem to have been a strict dogma, but a hierarchy of gods with varying amounts of influence. Uh, the main 12, the Olympians, were Zeus, Poseidon, Hades, Hestia, Hera, Ares, Athena, Apollo, Aphrodite, Hermes, Artemis, and Hephaestus. The movie Troy is actually just a 54% on Rotten Tomatoes, though it does have a 73% audience rating and was nominated for the Oscar in costume design. It's definitely pretty hokey at times, but if you try not to view it as a modern-made war epic, but instead view it as an interpretation of the ancient Greek tale, I think it works. It's, it's definitely at least watchable. It's, it's simple and clunky, but so is the Iliad if you remove the elegance of its poetry, and just look at the story. Uh, other movies about ancient Greece you could check out. The, the Clash of the Titans, Hercules, and Jason and the Argonauts deal with more of their mythology. 300, like we said, is based on the historical battle of Thermopylae, but they, they chose style over accuracy. And next week, we're going to jump more than 500 years ahead as we start to tackle D.W. Griffith's three-hour monster from 1916, Intolerance. It jumps between four different narratives, so we'll just be focusing on the one that's next up in our chronology, the 539 BCE Battle of Opus that resulted in the Fall of Babylon. Babylon. 